I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome today to our podcast. Guess what? We're in year B. I know we're a little bit ahead of the actual dates because we're trying to give you some podcasts up front. But yeah, year B is here. And so today we are actually going to dive into Isaiah 64, 1 through 9. And so my first question for Alan today is, you know, why are we looking at at these Hebrew scriptures, these Old Testament passages instead of the gospel? What, What intrigues you about this? This set of pa- passages. Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, frankly, part of my problem is when you look at the gospel lessons, they're kind of all over the page. <laughs> you have a couple lessons from Mark, you have a lesson from John, you have a lesson from Luke. Of course, the problem is what Mark doesn't have a birth story, so we got it <clears throat> right. <laughs> we got right. to go cobbled it together somehow. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, on the other hand, these the Isaiah passages. Um, maybe not the ones that we're going to be dealing with explicitly this year, but I think we're all familiar with, you know, Isaiah passages that are just everywhere in our Advent litany. And um, we, we cite them and we, refer, we reference them and we have our festivals of lessons and carols, but we never really dig into the context of Isaiah and from in, in my opinion, what that does is it it generates, unfortunately, a kind of superficial understanding of these texts. A lot of people out there, you know, they see prophecy. Prophecy is equal to prediction. And if you study the if you study the prophets, you know that that prophecy is not prediction. Primarily, it is is primarily proclamation. And um, so the question is, how do these texts? Um, constitute proclamation um, for Isaiah's day but also for the church Um, and how do we how do we approach for me it's how do we approach them responsibly as advent texts because they're going to be in our in our liturgies whether they come in through hymns or whether they come in through um, choral pieces or whatever they're going to be in our in our Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. in our worship it's just how well do we understand them and so um, that's part of it the other part of it is i think um as brevard childs in his um, commentary on isaiah put it you know isaiah preaches the gospel before jesus you know in a very real sense yeah and so i i i I think it's helpful for us to delve into how isaiah does that and um um also as as hopefully responsible biblical interpreters to look at the background and 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 the history behind it excellent yeah i was thinking about just even how some of these you know the words of isaiah are so beautiful and how they become part of our kind of collective christian memory and probably we've even started to associate those with christ as opposed to the prophet Isaiah. and that's the challenge is is we 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 read those isaiah prophets directly as referring to christ Mm -hmm. and we 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 forget to take them in the context of isaiah because that's where it starts right so let's let's go back and let's Let's give some context to this. Okay. 
Um, well, part, part of what we have to do here is understand that Isaiah probably is not simply one, uh, the message of one prophet. Um, you know, it's, it's become sort of standard among um, Hebrew Bible scholars to refer to first and second Isaiah. That's, that's almost a given these days. Um, first Isaiah is typically the uh, Isaiah chapters one through thirty nine, and and when you read Isaiah chapters one through thirty nine, you get the image of, you know, this is the message of the prophet about how um, there is an impending judgment for their disobedience and for their willful rejection of God and God's ways, but the judgment has not come yet. The judge, you know, the hammer has not fallen. When you read, when you start with Isaiah forty things shift because it sounds like perhaps another prophet, perhaps a student of the original Isaiah, we don't know, um, is addressing a very different setting. It sounds like he's addressing a situation where um, the people have been uh, punished for their sins. They, they, are, they are in exile. And so the message of second Isaiah becomes one of comfort and promise of restoration. And, um, and so, you know, much of the chapters, uh, 40 through 54 especially, deal with that. Now the question then comes in, do we have a third Isaiah? <clears throat> and I don't think, I don't think there's a, uh, I don't think there is a, a consensus on this. But in my own reading, when I've read through Isaiah, um, there is a shift at, for, at chapter 55, and it seems like the shift is back to um, the lack of justice and righteousness um, to, in the newly restored nation after the return from exile. And, um, you know, and, and this fits what we know of that time period in, in Israel's history um, in, that, in that place um, after the return from exile, there was a lot of chaos. Uh, it was incredibly disorganized. They, the the new Jewish nation was very weak, and and they were basically at the mercy of of more powerful peoples around them. And 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 in the midst of all of that, you know, they're 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 not really giving as much attention to God and God's ways right. as the prophets of that time. Right felt they needed to. Right. Well, I'd say as a historian, I tend to be on the th three, the third Isaiah concept. <clears throat> I think it fits historically really well when you look at what they're saying versus what is actually going on historically. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a fair, <coughs> excuse me, a fair observation to uh, make. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the way, uh, you know, Isaiah 64 then falls into that, that pattern, I think, of addressing uh, that fledgling nation mm -hmm. that has yeah. that has they have been restored to the land, but <laughs> all is not well. Um, they, the the restoration, I think, has fallen far short of their expectations, and they're they're struggling with how to how to how to reconcile the wonderful promises in Second mm -hmm. Isaiah with the reality that the people faced when they right. returned from exile. And so here we are, in Isaiah sixty four as our first advent text yes, yes so i think 
why? Why are we jumping in here? What mm-hmm. does that What does that speak about the coming of Christ? Well, I the the I think the. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to try to read the minds of the people who put together the Revised Common Lectionary, but if I had to guess, I would say that the whole language of the plea for God to come um, probably drew them to this text. And that, I, to me, I think that that seems to be the connection with Advent. Um, um, and I want to back up just a little bit with that because it... F- if you read the chapter as a whole and not just the nine verses assigned allotted by the lectionary. Yes. You've got to read the whole chapter. I, I, well, I would tend to uh, add on those last three I verses. I have done that myself. <laughs> I have done that myself. It's okay if you do that, Freds. <laughs> yeah, I have done that myself. Um, anyway, if you, if, you, if you read the whole chapter, you see that really the silence and the hiddenness of God, the fact that the people are languishing, the people are suffering, and it seems like God has abandoned them. God's not doing what they expect God to do, um, you know, is, is the problem. You know, they've been devastated. They're, they're, you know, the restoration that second Isaiah promised has not been fully realized, um, and um, they're struggling. And so that this, this presents a challenge to their faith. Um, I think there was a, a cognitive dissonance between their faith in God and their experience. Uh, you know, they couldn't see, based on their faith, they couldn't see how it would be possible that God would abandon them, but they also couldn't understand their experience in any other way than that God had abandoned mm-hmm. them. <laughs> and so as a result of that, you have this just impassioned plea for God to come. And, and it's, I think it's interesting that the way in which the way in which the text uh, expresses this plea. It's not for God to come. It's for God to come down. Yes, to come <laughs> down. Right, this very physical sense. Yes, um, there is. I mean, I think we're very much in the ancient worldview where God absolutely. was up there and we're separated from God by the firmament, which is essentially the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the assumption is that God has to tear apart open up this firmament in order to come down. And what's more, um, I think the, 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 the concept of what happens when God is present is, is interesting because when God does come down, the mountains shake. Mm-hmm. And I, I, when I think about this, I think about Sinai. Right, right, right. And, and Calvin will actually tell us that's obviously Sinai. Oh, for cool. Example. Nice, so that's nice. how he interprets that. I'm yeah. glad we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, not only did the mountain shake, but all the nations will tremble, you know, when, when God comes down. And so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that they have this very, uh, I think we would almost say naive concept of God's presence. Uh, God is up there, separated by the firmament, God, or the, the heavens, basically. That's, that's the, the, the term shemayim in Hebrew refers to the heavens or the sky. It can refer to the sky. And so the idea is that God would open up that firmament and, and come and be present mm-hmm. in, in some different way than they perceived God's, God to be. I think they sort of perceived God's hiddenness and God's silence as absence. And mm-hmm. that's something I think we can talk about because I don't know that that's, ne- I would say that's not the, not the case, but uh, that's how they perceived it. 
And so, um, you know, um, in the in this in this situation of a crisis of faith, you know, they're pleading for God to come down. And so, I think that coming aspect is mm-hmm. where it ties in with Advent mm-hmm. myself. And I think that you know, when we think about our own experience of God, I think it. it you know, and we'll even talk more about this later, but I think it, it ties into some of our experience of, well, why hasn't God responded or mm-hmm. is God really present? And so mm-hmm. it, I think, I think it makes sense why they, why they picked this. Sure, mm-hmm. sure, mm-hmm. sure. So, um, an, another thing that I, I noticed about, uh, this passage is that in the midst of the struggle for faith, you know, in that, in that crisis, in that cognitive dissonance, um, they seem to continue to maintain the confidence that God is the one who works for those who wait for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is the one who meets, or uh, is the literal translation, or helps is the way some versions render it, mm-hmm. those who do right. And here we're talking about tzedek, tzedekah, mm-hmm. which is the term for righteousness in the Hebrew Bible. Right. Um, and, and righteousness has a, is, is, a, is a key concept in the Hebrew Bible, as as it was in Matthew, as we saw, right? right? Absolutely, and it refers yes, to yes. it refers to to practicing God's ways, and 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 mm-hmm. and really, in, even in practical sense, practicing God's justice mm-hmm. in such a way that all people are able to thrive. Mm-hmm. So, so God meets or helps those who do right, those who wait for Him. And I, I like that. I, it's interesting because that, that language of waiting is found in the Hebrew Bible, in the Psalms, and Isaiah, and other places. And in some contexts, maybe not everywhere, but in some contexts, I think waiting for God is a language of faith. Yeah. I, you wait I, in hope and trust that God will show himself to be God, the God that we have trusted him to be, you know? Right, and right, so. Right. Um, um, there is this confidence that God is still going to going to going to act on behalf of those who who seek God. Now there is a kind of conditionality here because it talks about you know those who do right, those who remember His ways, you know, as opposed to uh, forgetting them and 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 um, practicing sinful rebellion. I guess we could say. Um, but um, nevertheless, I think these are terms of faith, right? Waiting for God, remembering God's ways. This is what it looks like. And we saw that in, in Jesus' teachings in Matthew, that, mm-hmm. that, that this kind of faith leads to the practice of God's ways, righteousness, which promotes justice for the weak mm-hmm. and the helpless. You know, Alan, I, I'm, as we're in this discussion, I keep hearing a reference to Matthew, which I think is really, really important when we again, reflect on our last podcast, which we're dealing with Matthew and Matthew's um, desire to this, this kind of Jewish background that he puts into his, his scripture. And so I think this is really important because clearly um, as the early church is looking at this, this is maybe what, how they are understanding these texts, these people that, at least these people that came from a Jewish background. I think people who came from a Jewish background, when they heard Jesus' teachings, they would have heard just tons of echoes of the Jewish mm-hmm. prophets, mm-hmm. the major prophets, the minor prophets even, but main, the major prophets. They would have heard tons mm-hmm. of echoes. There's a reason why when Jesus asked, who do they say I am? They say, you're one of the prophets. You're, of the prophets. you're Jeremiah, yeah. you know, and, and because because his message was very, was just chock full of 
of the the prophetic uh, ideas definitely mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and how important how important again as we're trying to push home why why this text yeah. i think you've got it right there this is central to to the Christian faith, it's, it's, mm-hmm. and it's it's foundational for understanding Jesus and His message and His teaching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I think the church has tended to just kind of skip over, um, skip over the, the the Hebrew Bible. You know, really, I mean, Jesus is a figurehead only in that He dies for us and is raised again. He's born, he dies for us, he's raised again. That's what we know about Jesus. And then we skip right into Paul and, mm-hmm. and the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And we don't have any kind of understanding of Jesus' life and ministry and what Jesus really meant. Now, I don't think that's true for everybody, but, but I think historically in the church, that's kind of been the approach is mm-hmm. just to kind of skip over Jesus because Jesus sounds like, a Hebrew prophet. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Very good. So um, another connection I see to Advent here is that in this context, um, the plea that Isaiah voices on behalf of the people is that God will not remember their sin, but rather see the affliction of the people and restore them fully. And you have promises, again, in Third in Isaiah, of this full restoration of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. this full restoration of the people uh, that will take place. Now, um, in my opinion, in this section of Isaiah, the Lord promises to do this in a way that I would say, has not been fulfilled in history. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think there's an inherent tension. Again, I think this is one of the reasons for, for selecting these texts for Advent. There's an inherent pull toward the consummation, the completion of God's kingdom at the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's, the, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the milieu in which Advent texts live and breathe. They point us forward. Interestingly, the text, the scripture readings in the lectionary for the first for the Advent of Christ at Christmas, um, um, right. point us forward to the second Advent of Christ. You know, as He returns. I agree a hundred percent. It's the already not yet, already not yet, and it's yeah. definitely here. I, yeah. I, 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 I'm right on board. <laughs> but when you when you read the details of what 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 the Lord promises to do for Jerusalem. I think, and, you, and, you, and if you know the history of the Jewish people up to today, that has never taken place. That kind of full restoration has never taken place. And so in my mind, as a, as a biblical person, I, I think of the new Jerusalem in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And I so. again, I think there's a, I, I, I would, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, re- I'm trying to read the mind of the author of Revelation, uh, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an intentional connection to the promises in Isaiah. And I will say this: uh, this was a study that I didn't do, but I read. There was a there was a, a, a scholarly study of the allusions to the prophets in Revelation, and yeah. they were all over the place. Absol- absolutely, absolutely. And so I I think that I think that. The promises of restoration in this portion of Isaiah point us forward to mm-hmm. the return of Christ, definitely. Um, just like the other Advent scriptures, um, they point us to the day when when God's kingdom comes fully, and 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 then yep. these promise, then yep. these promises are fulfilled in their fullness. 
you know, as, as we're talking, I'm thinking about God, the architect of our lives, of our world, at the beginning and the end. Um, absolutely, this makes sense when you tie it with Revelation back to Isaiah, that this is all connected. Um, and I, I think it's central to, who, to, our, to our Christian faith. Is, and I think when we try to cut it out or cut, cut well, this is just referring to Jesus, we're going to cut everything out, then you're missing the breadth of, of God's, of God's uh, redemptive mission for us. I think you're missing um, the final coming. I think you're missing the end as well as the beginning. So, yes. yes if we go. don't, you know, if we don't, if we don't try to pull it all together, if we don't try to understand it as a piece, if we separate it into different parts, we're not going to get it. It's, exactly. go, it's not going to make as much sense. And this is one of the things I love about Calvin was his emphasis on, you know, that there, there is one covenant, there is one, one revelation of God, yep. there's not multiple revelations of God, there is one revelation of God, and, and it, yes. is, it is of a peace, and we're, we're to approach the scripture from that perspective. And um, I, I, I just, you, you can't understand... You can't understand the Jesus without understanding the prophets. Exactly. You really, I don't exactly. think you can. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So this is cool, everybody. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll Thanks. be back. Thanks. We're back, and uh, I'm going to interview Christy about some of the history behind these things. And so let's start with sort of the obvious place here, Christy. Um, you know, we have this revised common lectionary, and a lot of us maybe take it for granted, but, um, you know, what's going on with the revised common lectionary in Advent here? Help us understand this. Put it in context. Right. And of course, a lot of a lot of times we just reference the lectionary and everyone kind of assumes we're talking about the revised common lectionary, which we really are today. But to put this into perspective, this really didn't come into use until 1994. Really? So, yeah, it's new. Wow. So if you remember growing up in the church and not hearing these words of revised common lectionary, that may be why. Now, there was a lectionary that was used, a common lectionary from 1983 in a Presbyterian church, and yet a lot of pastors likely didn't use it, especially if you had a pastor that was trained earlier than that. It was not a terribly big deal. Well, and I know that, for example, in the Book of Common Prayer uh, that the Episcopal Church uses, I mean, doesn't that go back to 1925? And, and they had at least back to 1925 a, a schedule of readings and probably beyond that. Well, there's lectionaries that go way back. Yeah. But our lectionary ties ultimately to about 1969 and Vatican II. So we are actually in partnership with other mainline churches right. and Episcopalians with basically accepting what is now our Revised Common Lectionary um, a series of readings with the three years of texts, mm -hmm. which is what we use now. So we could tie it back to that um, in particular. Prior to that, there was uh, another lectionary used, but uh, what is really remarkable about it is um, the main one did not did not utilize these uh, Old Testament or Hebrew scripture mm. passages in it. So when you're thinking about, I mean, if you're familiar, like the greatest Christmas pageant ever, you know, and they have the Christmas pageant that had, they referenced that we continue to use today that just ties in all these assumed scriptures about, right. about the uh, Christmas story. This tradition 
likely comes from kind of a pre-revised common lectionary tradition. Uh. And so people have in mind what are Christmas texts and what are not Christmas texts, what are Advent texts, what are not. And um, they've lost out on this breadth of scripture. So in a way, as we're bringing this to people, this is this is, is new to the kind of the Christian tradition. Mm. I mean, really, when you're thinking about 1994, even 1983, um, this is pretty pretty new. So yeah, these texts sure. weren't really used before that. And um, a lot of us are, are scared to use yeah. them. We just want to go back and use what we've used before. I'm, And of course, you know, we in the PCUSA, we have the freedom to go off the Revised yes, Common of Dictionary, of course. Um, but this encouragement to use it and this recognition that the problem was preachers were tending to go to their favorite text. Right. And so you saw a lot of people going to... You saw a lot of conservative churches going to the letters of Paul and, and those being very rule-oriented that way. Um, so this is a real chance to get us through the breadth of Scripture, to get us into Scriptures that we're not necessarily comfortable with. Friends, do this. <laughs> do this, Isaiah. And yet, if, if, if we look at Isaiah, we see that there's a resonance there yeah. with, with the New Testament that, 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 is, that makes it a richer, I think, uh, oh it, it enriches our understanding of, of God's redemptive work. This is, a beautiful, this is a beautiful text we looked at today. So, um, and... And I think can provide a really, a, a really, really um, enliven and, and enrich people's experience in Advent. So yeah. I have to say, I have to throw this in. I'm sorry. You know, when you talk about people's favorite Advent text, my mind goes to a Charlie Brown Christmas and Linus reciting Luke yes. chapter two. <laughs> yes. How many of us? Guilty, guilty. Absolutely. Our our Christmas traditions are so embedded mm-hmm. that we aren't even finding anything fresh. And this is a really good way to bring in fresh the freshness of the text and get people really thinking about Advent and that waiting period. And we've talked about this, you know, as Christians for years is we've gotten lazy with Advent. We turn into Christmas as soon as Halloween's over and the Christmas is up and the Christmas carols are on. And um, even the texts are so common that we we tune out. So this gives your congregation chance to tune in. There you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, so let's, I guess, let's shift over to the reformers themselves. How did they approach these kinds of texts in relation to Advent? Sure. So the reality is the reformers are not preaching this Isaiah text for Advent. They are not Hmm. preaching it on Sunday. Really? Yeah. Calvin is preaching Old Testament during the week. He's preaching gospel on Sunday. There is a lectionary that is out, a medieval lectionary. It's all gospel texts. Um, mm. Old Testament passages are used for, um, or, or Hebrew scripture passages um, are used for like some of the offices, uh, the daily mm-hmm. office, but mm-hmm. they're not being used for Sunday text. So that's mm. that's kind of a big deal. That's surprising to me, given, given Calvin's approach to scripture as a whole. Well, I just don't think they had gotten there yet, uh-huh. right? I, I, I think it's just tradition. And so when you're looking historically at the church, you're looking, if we go way back and we are looking at the Hebrew practice of these scriptures, then all of a sudden you have your Sunday service. You're recognizing the course, resurrection. Course. So what would be obvious to be preaching when you start bringing in texts, the gospel. gospel texts? Right. 
that's a lot of our tradition, and that actually then remained historically part of the church for a long time. Um, now, this would all be fine, but how many of us in our congregations are really doing the daily office? How many of right. us are listening to sermons every day of the week? Or do we have a midweek Bible study where we dig into the Hebrews, Hebrew Bible text? Right. <laughs> so I think, oddly enough, this kind of tradition of just reading the gospel on Sunday really reflects kind of a long-held practice mm. in the church. But as we have our modern people and we're realizing our congregations are beginning to get the breadth of the service, I think to get back to what the reformers desired for people to have knowledge and read, be reading the scriptures, we really need to be digging into reading them and we really need to be moving our congregations through the breadth of scripture, especially new Christians who, uh, who aren't going to come into contact with the Bible, probably other than Sundays, at least for a while, um, this helps get everybody on board to this this wonderful, um, these ancient texts that that are so rich. We don't we don't want to be surface Christians, um, and we and our scripture is is deeper than that, and it, we owe it to our faith, I think, to to dig into it. Deeper. Sure, mm-hmm. one of the things that I appreciate about the the breadth of the lectionary is that um, you know if if you read all four lectionary texts in worship then you're exposing your congregation to much of the content of the bible over the course of three years absolutely absolutely and it's 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 cool um, and i have a seminary professor dr tim slemons if you want to look him up uh, <laughs> he actually did a a, a year D, you know, we have the three years. And he, he said, I think there's more scripture we could dig in. And he wrote an entire lectionary year on a new year, year D. So if you're really wanting something interesting and cool, have a look at that. Um, but uh, anyway, most folks aren't going to do that. But it, I, th- I think it was a, it's a fun exercise to think about um, that, again, even our lectionary um, doesn't cover everything. No, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. but at least gets us through the church year, and at least gives us a, a taste of right. the breadth of scripture. Well, and as a as a pastor, you know, I saw um, as a preacher, I, I saw myself easily and way you know way back falling into that pattern of preaching on the things that were uppermost in my mind, preaching on my own agenda, and you know, I adopted the lectionary as a pattern. Um, probably 20 years ago or so and the reason was because I didn't want to just just uh fall down on those those um things that were my my special concerns right exactly exactly um you know when you and we're I think um to head back to our our reformers again um one of the things Alan already mentioned it with with Calvin but Luther as well they did look at the whole uh, breadth of scripture. I mean, they felt that was very important. Um, and early on in Luther's life, he was very much a supporter um, of um, of of scripture, of, of of ancient language, not just like the Greek New Testament, not like what Erasmus was doing, but also the Old Testament work done by by Jewish scholars mm-hmm. and Jewish scholarship. So the yeah, um, I was always fascinated by that the, that the reformers sort of learned their Hebrew at the knees of Jewish scholars. Yes, yes, <laughs> because it, that was the only place to get it. <laughs> right. So you know, we talked about this early in our podcast, but that that anti-Semitism versus these scholars that are 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 Jews that are doing work in the scholarship and um, the the uh, 
the real effort of them to protect those scholars yeah. um, and, and to protect the Old Testament and, as central to the message of God. And of course, Calvin um, is, Luther is absolutely on page that Calvin develops later is this whole, you know, vision of God for the, uh, the entire breadth of our human, our human experience and how the scripture then um, speaks to it, mm-hmm. both from prior to Christ and and to the end times, to Revelation. I've always really loved that about Calvin. Yeah. You know, Paul has this thing uh, in Galatians where he talks about how the Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham in his call in Genesis 12. In other words, Mm -hmm. you know, the message that I'm preaching, the message that I'm delivering is the same one that God delivered to Abraham, you know, at the very beginning of the Bible. And and so I, I've always loved that that emphasis mm-hmm. of Calvin mm-hmm. tying the whole scripture together with the with the message that right, that, that right. unifies it. Exactly. I'm I'm gonna pull this into a kind of a fun conversation that Alan and I have on and off. Um, and if you've heard me reference Old Testament and you've heard me mm-hmm. reference Hebrew scripture, and you'll tend to hear me use Old Testament more, you'll tend to hear Alan say Hebrew scripture more. We both actually use our preferred, for very much the same reasons, um, uh, being that, but yet here we tend to use different texts. Um, and um, anyway, I'm going to let Alan tell you why he prefers Hebrew, Hebrew scripture. I'm going to tell you why I think of Old Testament, and, and then you can think about maybe what you, how you like to think about those scriptures. Well, uh, so you have to understand, I, you know, I started in the Baptist world. And in the Baptist world, it was always Old Testament and New Testament. And um, as a scholar, uh, as a professor, I was working in the in the Bible Scholars Guild. You know, we had a we had a uh, a regional and a national guild, and I did papers. You know, and I would go to those conferences and um, became aware. You know, that there was some sensitivity uh, to um, uh, what our language as Christians. The implications it had for our, the way we look at our Jewish brothers and sisters, and so um, um, and and in, the, in those contexts, they would call it Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures, and and that was it. And and so I thought, well, okay, so yeah, this is the Hebrew Bible, so I'm comfortable calling it the Hebrew Bible, as a nod to the fact that you know it was the Jewish canon before. Well, uh, sort of before and, and alongside of being the Christian canon, um, and I want to I want to pay deference and pay respect to that to that uh, historical fact. But I always refer to the New Testament. And in fact, in, in a in a conference where I gave a paper to the segment of the uh, Society of Biblical Literature that was design, that was that was concerned with all of these issues, I made it clear that you know while I will refer to the Hebrew Scriptures, I will use the language of New Testament because it is central to the New Testament that there is a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, I think I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be respectful both of the Hebrew Bible as a Jewish, originally, you know, a Jewish scripture, but also um, part of our canon. But then also the New Testament is our Christian scripture. And, and um, that's, that's my, that's Mm -hmm. my, I guess that's my thought process in that. So, and I, totally on board. And and as a historian, I had a very interesting experience as well um obviously in in my if i'm teaching western civilization i'm teaching something i'm going to refer to hebrew scriptures i'm going to use that terminology very intentionally um 
and because I'm going to be talking about Jewish history. Um, and what's really, really interesting then, though, as I moved, um, as I moved into becoming a pastor, I kind of reclaimed um, pers- on a personal level the concept of Old Testament, um, because for me was, well, those are Jewish scriptures, and as a Christian, they really don't have any validity for me. I be- became a Marcionite, <laughs> right? Marcion didn't want anything to do with the Old Testament. Um, and so I kind of reclaimed that language. And in, of course, Reformation scholarship, when you're talking about, um, at least when you're dealing with reformers who are re- referencing this, these scriptures as Old Testament, that's pretty common just to talk about it in terms of Old Testament as that's how they saw it. Yeah. And But for me, in my Christian walk, it was also helpful because it made me think of the connectivity between the two mm-hmm. different sets of scriptures. So uh, kind, of a, uh, kind of a rediscovery. And um, I just, I think it's important for us here, and, and both Al and I are on the same page here when we're talking about bringing these up for Advent texts is this is a breadth of scripture that mm-hmm. is open to, to both of us. Um, and we both recognize this as integral to our Christian faith, um, whether you want to reference this as Hebrew scripture or Old Testament, um, but don't discount, just don't discount it. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. and even go back to, you know, the early canon of the church. They didn't fall in Marcion. They didn't kick it out, but they wanted it in there. And so I think that just reemphasizes again that we need to teach it. Sure, sure. I I, I agree, hundred percent. I agree. Um, you know, w- one of the things we talked about in in my segment was about how the promises that were made didn't live up to the fulfillment. That, that the people saw. And I wondered, um, how did the reformers deal with promise and fulfillment in the Bible, or lack of fulfillment, as the case may be, and especially related to Advent? Well, let's talk about Calvin in particular. I mean, Calvin, there's kind of an interesting discussion amongst reformers as to you know what these, um, these Old Testament texts are. Um, Calvin tended to see them as prehistorical books that that would have that would that would come out in a historical reality later on um so part of part of history he didn't see this as strictly like disconnected prophecy but they would have some kind of um they would have some kind of uh, historical reality um and he saw that in the coming of christ so the christ would fulfill but then he also saw that in terms of the church the that, that Christ came with him and the church came with him so that the church continues to fulfill um, the promises made. Uh, I see. So there's fulfillment in Christ, but then there is ongoing fulfillment in the church. It, absolutely. But absolutely. then is there also final fulfillment yes. in, the, in, the, in the ultimate kingdom? Yeah. 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 So, you know, today when we talked about reformed and still reforming, I think this is evidence in, pro- uh, in, in Calvin's concepts here. Calvin may not have said it in that terminology, but it's definitely part of his theology. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everybody. We are back, and we just want to talk about some implications of using this text and some of the complexities. Um, You know, we are talking about this as Advent text. We're talking about this in terms of what it means to hope. And yet, um, when you're reading a text, as, as you probably know, it's not necessarily that easy to read. 
Well, guess what? It's even harder to translate. And um, so we wanted to point out some of the, maybe some of the complexities of this text and trying to understand what what waiting means um, and how it's brought forth to us and, and particularly new, new Revised Standard Version, but also other popular versions like the new, um, uh, the new Common English Bible. Yeah. So uh, one of the challenges we face um, is that while the New Testament Greek text that we have is a scholarly reconstruction based on the principles of modern textual criticism, they have evaluated the various copies of the New Testament in Greek and other languages and determined to the best of their ability that this is the closest we can come to the original. And um, um, B.F. Westcott, the great British uh, uh, New Testament scholar who was, was a pioneer in this field said, you know, we have reconstructed the original New Testament to within about 90% accuracy. And in other words, we're not talking about, we're not talking about calling into question huge swaths of the Bible's content, you know. And, and the same is true when it comes to the Hebrew Bible. Now, when it comes to the Hebrew Bible, however, we don't have a scholarly reconstructed text. We have what's called a received text, a traditional text. It's called, it, we know of it as the Masoretic text, but it's based on a, a, um, a copy of the Hebrew Bible from the 10th century A.D., which is much later. <laughs> Listen to that date. <laughs> yeah, 10th century A.D. We're talking about yeah. almost a thousand years right. after Christ. Exactly. And, um, um, you know, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls gives mm -hmm. us some biblical texts in Hebrew uh, that come from the first century before Christ. And we also have the Septuagint, right. the Greek translation, right. uh, which comes from about the third century. Mm -hmm. We have this, uh, a translation in Syriac that comes from a similar time frame. So there are other, other resources, but it's unlikely that we will ever have a scholarly reconstructed text because of all the different facets of religious groups that have to come together and agree on that. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And we will probably continue to find more texts. Right, right. And so what happens then is every translation, every version of the Bible, whether it's the New Revised Standard Version or, or whether it's the NIV or whether it's the New Living Translation or whether it's the Common English Bible, whatever it is, every translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, basically the translators wind up doing their own reconstruction. And so, for example, we have Isaiah 64, 5. Now, if you're reading in the New Revised Standard Version, the end of the passage says something like, you hid yourselves and we sinned. Um, well, what they have done there is they have, uh, they have changed the wording of the Hebrew Bible because the Everybody agrees that the wording of the Hebrew as it stands in the Masoretic text doesn't make much sense. Basically, it says, we continued in our sin and, and we were delivered. <laughs> Which doesn't <laughs> Which, make sense. It's a non sequitur. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not yeah. logical. It's a, it's a non sequitur. So uh, some people have followed that approach, like the New Revised Standard Version. They have, they have changed the final verb of, of this uh, passage in the Hebrew to reflect uh, that idea that 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 um, it's more of a statement of of God God hid and we sinned. Um, others take a take it I guess a more quote unquote literal approach. Um, they keep the wording but they interpret it differently. So what they'll say is we sinned and we continued in our sin. How then shall we be saved? 
Which so, that makes sense. That does make sense. Both of these both of these translations make sense. Mm-hmm. Actually, the way they handled it, they make sense. That's true. That's but true. here's the problem: we don't know which one is more accurate because we have no access to the kinds of information about the original text of the Hebrew Bible that we have about the Greek New Testament. So here's my pu- here's my here's my plug. Make sure you have a translation of the Bible that has lots of footnotes that tell you, well, other, other manuscripts have this, or the Hebrew here is unclear, because especially for, for our listeners who don't have training in Greek and Hebrew, right. you know, that becomes crucial then to alert you, hey, there's a problem here. You know, you might be reading a version of the Bible that is very different from what the people in your pews are reading. Right, <laughs> and they, right. And so you may have this pa- question, Pastor, you, your version says this, my version says something different. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're trying to help you out with that here and giving you a little bit of uh, sort of a, everything you ever want to know about the text of the Bible in, in a few uh, short minutes, but also recommending uh, that, you, that you make sure you, that the Bible you're using has lots of footnotes. Right. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, this is a totally, uh, um, um, I haven't been paid to make this advertisement, but one that I have discovered a long time ago is called the Net Bible. They called it the Net Bible because it was originated originally. It was just an, an internet version of the Bible, mm-hmm. but um, it has copious footnotes about translation, about the original, and I find it very helpful, especially mm-hmm. in dealing with the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, so if you're if you're if you're one of those persons who struggles with these kinds of things, uh, check out the Net Bible. Mm-hmm. But just make sure you have a make sure you're reading a version that alerts you to the fact that hey, there's right. we don't always know we don't always know what the right translation is, and um, um, that way right. that when when your when your parishioner comes up and asks you that question, you won't you won't have right. the deer in the headlight look. <laughs> well, and and just to remind you that you know. Um, while we are from a very scholarly tradition, there's a lot of traditions out there that come running that they have the right translation and that this mm-hmm. is the right one. And There is one version that is the true version. Right. That's right. And even though um, we, you know better as scholars, that doesn't mean your parishioners aren't going to come with that. They're sure. going to hear it from their neighbors and friends. So sure. it's a good chance to educate them as well and to really the importance of, of, of reading um the, the deeper translations and, and trying to find out um, what where those where those differences lie well and you know uh, in my career I I, I, I studied with I, I was in in, sem- in seminary with in PhD studies with and I met people in the guild who have translated like the common English Bible I know some of the translators yeah, personally. Me too. <laughs> I, I know some of the translators of the new right. living translation personally you know um, uh, the 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 editor of the New Revised Standard Version was Bruce Metzger, who was just like a yes, a giant, I've met Bruce Metzger. Met absolutely. him, lovely Christian gentleman, mm-hmm. wonderful man of faith, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's wonderful to have that have that background, but at the same time, you know, um, I, I think it's it's important that we realize that everybody they're all just making they're all making their best you know, educated um, decision about about how to interpret these texts. So, you know, people ask me, what's your favorite translation of the Bible? Well, I have some that I enjoy reading, but as a New Testament scholar, I don't agree with 
any right. translation of the New Testament well, 100%. And I think, you know, if you haven't had language, but even if you've had just a little and you've started to do your own translations, you realize immediately that choices have to be made. Yeah, and, right. and, and And while I am not the Greek scholar here or the Hebrew scholar, I still try to translate pieces for myself um, with every sermon, even if it's a short part, because yep. it gives me a more clarity into my mind what I'm preaching. And then I go look at the texts um, that are out there. And well, and frankly, one of the things I do in preparing for a sermon is I'll go on, you know, there's different Bible websites. And there's usually a button where you can look up a verse, and there's usually a button where it just says, compare all translations. Yeah. And I do that. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because, and, and, you know, I think for, for someone, especially for someone who doesn't have Greek and Hebrew training and is out there trying to do their best, um, that's a great tool. And it it's is. a very simple thing to do, but I think it really gives you, because if you compare some of your favorite translations, you're going to see where they have made different interpretive moves, especially in the, the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. Because um, there, <laughs> oh my gosh, there are so many places in the Hebrew Bible where, uh, there's some places where we actually don't have the verse there's a in the new revised standard version has ellipsis points in one of the in the verses you know exactly and there are other places like like this passage uh isaiah 64 5 where the hebrew text of the masoretic text just doesn't doesn't make make sense sense. right and so scholars feel compelled to try to figure that out the best they can yeah and and the way to become aware of those things is just simply to compare the translations and and, you know these days the internet makes that simple it's a click of a button and you've got you've got Maybe 15, 20 English translations right there for you. Right, right. <laughs> so in a, in, a, in, a, in a very simple words, don't be lazy. Do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said it that way. I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> that, that's, 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 the, that's a history teacher in me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the New Testament Greek teacher in me would say, you know, you don't have to be a, a Greek scholar to be able to avail yourself of the fact that, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of work in Bible translation. And, and you can, you know, like I said, all you have to do is click the button to compare translations. And, and you can see for yourself, you know, that, that um, oh, there's some differences here. Mm-hmm. And then you can dig into commentaries and figure out, well, why is that? Right. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> we had fun today. So yes, enjoy, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.